Please enjoy this episode of the Bitcoin Magazine podcast with Greg King from Osprey Fund. All right, let's take a quick break from that episode. I want to tell you guys about our sponsor. It is Bitcoin 2022 conference. I am sure you saw the videos. You may have been there in person. Bitcoin 2021 was an absolute smashing success. It was the biggest conference in Bitcoin history, crypto history, whatever history of the digital asset sphere. Bitcoin is number one and the Bitcoin 2021 conference is number one with a bullet. It was an absolutely incredible time. I was working my ass off the whole time, but I got to meet so many incredible community members. And I think the best testament to how amazing Bitcoin 2021 was, was not just all of the amazing, you know, accolades and, uh, and compliments that I got personally and our team got, but also it's the skin in the game in Bitcoin 2022. We have already sold close to 1500 tickets. That is more than 10% of the people, everyone who went to Bitcoin 2021 have already purchased tickets to Bitcoin 2022. We have not released a date. We have not released a city. We have not released anything. That is the biggest compliment. That is the biggest skin in the game of the community being down for this conference. Bitcoin 2022 is going to be bigger than Bitcoin 2021. It is going to be better than Bitcoin 21 in every single way. And we are going to be bringing you the best opportunity to mingle with the biggest, the baddest, the most Bitcoin people on the planet. So join the revolution. Go to b.tc forward slash conference. Get your tickets today. I don't know what the ticket prices are. They are going up. I think they're $249 right now. We just rolled out fiat ticket uh, purchases. All the tickets purchased before today were all purchased in BTC. So get it, guys. Get it. Get this ticket. Be at Bitcoin 2022. See you there. Bitcoiners, I am really excited to be sitting across from Greg King, the founder and CEO of Osprey uh, Investments and the Osprey Bitcoin Trust. Um, Greg, welcome to the Bitcoin Magazine podcast. Hey, it's great to be here. So, uh, Greg, you know, we were just chatting about how uh, you grew up in California and now you're over in Connecticut. I'm just kind of curious, you know, who is Greg King? How did you stumble into Bitcoin? And uh, let's go from there. Okay, sounds good. Uh, I'll skip the first part of the question because, you know, I'm, I'm going to spend my lifetime trying to answer who is Greg King. But like how I stumbled into Bitcoin um, I was at a conference in 2013. I was pretty bored and I think I was surfing, uh, you know, around on my phone and uh, read an article probably on Zero Hedge that was talking about the stuff called Bitcoin. I never heard of it before. And um, I was pretty disenchanted with gold and silver. You know, I was a gold and silver investor after the crisis of 08 and all the money printing that got done. Um, but they weren't doing what they're supposed to do, you know, which is rally when uh, when the inflation or I guess when the money supply balloons out. Uh, so anyway, I stumbled into Bitcoin. And by that evening, I had bought a couple of Bitcoin on a Coinbase account, um, which, you know, seems like forever ago. I guess it was eight years ago. A lot has happened since then. But I'm glad I I'm glad I was bored at that conference. 
Yeah, well, I mean, buying Bitcoin then is a great time. And I feel like back in 2013, most people didn't necessarily grasp onto digital gold, store of value um, type asset. There's a lot of different narratives kind of floating around. And the people that did the the best, that kind of actually benefited the most from being early is the people who actually, you know, understood that. Can you kind of talk about you know, you, you mentioned, you know, you were into gold and silver, you'd lived through 2008. Um, can you talk a little bit about like, you know, maybe some other factors that primed you to just get it? I guess part of it is um, I, I had been involved in creating um, exchange traded products for, for the previous, I don't know, 10 years or so, eight or 10 years. And because of, of my career working with a couple of investment banks, I'd been focused on uh, exposures that contain derivatives, right? So I feel like I've always been around the edges in alternative investments and, um, you know, thinking about things that are that are beyond kind of the 60-40 stocks and bonds world. Um, so I just have a natural inclination to, you know, curiosity and um, always kind of trying to figure out what's the next thing. Okay, so um, Osprey Funds uh, kicking it off with OBTC. Um, can you just talk about um, you know deciding to j- dive into uh, adding crypto into that you know kind of basket of alternative investments that you've yeah. uh, you've worked on? So it's a, a bit of a story, but um, I bought the the first Bitcoin in 2013. That was the year that the Winklevoss twins filed for an ETF, right? And I saw that filing and thought well, it's pretty early because I barely understood what Bitcoin was at the time. And I was pretty sure the SEC w- wasn't going to be you know, super enthusiastic. So um, two years went by and in 2015, the CFTC actually um, determined that you know, they were going to consider Bitcoin a commodity, which is important because it means that it's regulated under you know, these sets of rules instead of those sets of rules, as, as opposed to it being a security. Um, and so at that point, I decided to try and get involved on the work front and create an exchange traded fund. So we spent 2016 really talking to a couple exchanges, futures exchanges and things. And then in 2017, um, we filed for an ETF. But after talking to the SEC quite a bit, I figured out, you know, it's going to be years before this thing really gets approved. And so let's regroup and let's go forward with the structure that's already been proven. So by Grayscale, Grayscale launched a trust in, I don't even know, 2015, 16, maybe. Um, and it's, it's, you know, it's not an optimal structure. There are sort of pros and cons to how the thing works, but it's what works right now in the US market. And so we, we set up Osprey funds and we launched a Bitcoin fund. It takes a while. Uh, it takes at least a year to seed these funds and get them out to market. And so uh, earlier this year, we finally got the Bitcoin product out, OBTC, and we've launched you know, a couple funds since then and a couple more coming in a few weeks. And we're just going to kind of keep going. Nice. And I mean, let's talk about, um, you know, OBTC, I know Bitwise and and others have also jumped in as well as several ETFs in Canada actually becoming uh becoming available like how does all of these new entrants all of these new uh, options kind of affect let's just call it the original trust which is gbtc and you know it's 
typically, you know, traded at both premiums and wild premiums and negatives. Yeah. So that's one of the drawbacks of, of the current regulatory regime in the U S is, is ETFs haven't been allowed. Right. So these products, these trusts, they're very similar to an ETF, except for a couple of things. One, they can't be offered publicly have to be offered to accredited investors in the first instance. And then what that means is that there's a lag between the creation of new units for, uh, you know, satisfaction of, of market demand. So with an ETF, you know, if a billion dollars worth of new customers come in today that weren't there yesterday, well, guess what? You can create a billion dollars of new fund units same day. And there are market makers that do that. And they trade back and forth between the underlying stocks and the ETF. With this uh, situation we have now, there's basically six months to a year between creating new units and then them coming on onto the market. So what that meant for a long time for the Grayscale Fund is demand exceeded supply, right? And so that's why you had a premium. Recently, it went negative because I think supply exceeded demand, right? And um, it was it was probably uh, overbuilt. So they had they had pulled in quite a bit of AUM, and I think there's a bit of overhang there as new products launched, like ours, like the Canadian ETFs, etc. So can you just talk about the the market overall? Like, what about um, you know? the alternatives, the OBTC, um, you know, kind of made GBTC look so much less attractive? Well, I don't know. <clears throat> Excuse me. I don't know if it was like less attractive per se. I think it's just, you know, personally, my, my opinion is that it was a excess supply uh, of GBTC. I mean, I don't, I don't know exactly what they got to, but it was, I think, over 40 billion. And I know a lot of that had come in through hedge funds who were trying to create units and take advantage of some of the premiums in the market. And once those premiums started to shrink down or disappear, you know, I think those types of investors might be um, a little more short term and, you know, start dumping the stock, right? So, and that's where you get to a, a negative premium. So uh, can you talk a little bit about, um, you know, and maybe in the context of OBTC, like currently, you know, how are OBTC shares created? And then uh, I guess they don't ever get redeemed, right? Um, it's just a one-way um, function. Uh, can you can you just talk a little bit about that? And then maybe compare and contrast with what you explained of how uh, an ETF kind of set, you know, uh, they, they, they are created and redeemed on a daily basis to, to match NAV. Yeah. Um, so right now they cannot be redeemed. Shares of, of OBTC are created by private placements. So anybody who's an accredited investor or certainly an institution can come to Osprey at ospreyfunds.io, fill out a form and basically get brand new units of the trust. As such, they need to hold them for a year uh, before they can sell them in the secondary market. But at that point, they can you know, release them into their Schwab or Fidelity account and trade them under the ticker symbol OBTC, right? Um, our management fee is a lot lower than the, the, the competition at 49 basis points. And we also custody with Fidelity, which is somebody that you know most uh, retail investors have heard of and, and know and trust, et cetera. Um, but otherwise these products typically all work very similarly. The difference between these trusts and an ETF though is really that redemption feature that you talked about. And so because that's not allowed yet, 
um, these trusts trade at a premium or a discount. Now, we plan to convert ours to an ETF as soon as that's possible. Um, we've said that on previous uh, occasions, but you know, everyone's kind of speculating about, is that gonna happen this year, next year, the year after? It's basically been 12 to 18 months out you know, for the last five years. I think there's a good transition point to like, let's talk about the current status of, you know, a Bitcoin ETF in America. Um, I know that a lot of people have pointed to Gary Gensler, who's the new chairman and saying that, you know, he's a lot more favorable and open-minded to Bitcoin uh, than the previous uh, chair. Um, I'm just kind of curious, what's your insight into this current situation? Yeah, um, he's certainly more knowledgeable um than the previous uh kind of administration was teaches a course at mit about crypto so everyone thinks gensler's going to kind of kind of come in and save the day um you know i think we're a little more cautious than that uh i think he will look at the space do i think he's going to come riding in and approve all these bitcoin etf filings uh, not necessarily he might even um you know, take a, a harsher view because he does have expertise. And there, there are significant issues as the SEC has laid them out over the years um, that, you know, not all of them have been overcome. I think the space has evolved a lot. And I think a Bitcoin ETF is possible, but I'm not sure the SEC is, is quite there yet. Um, and I also don't think that they want to be seen to be following, you know, Canada or something like that, right? Um, so, People were asking if uh, that puts more pressure on them. I think it, it actually uh, probably entrenches them a little bit. But, um, you know, we'll, we'll see. I think if it's going to happen, it'll happen next year, not this year. But it's, it's too early to call at this point. Can we talk a little bit about some of the the SEC's qualms with Bitcoin? Because from my vantage point, I think that there's like a Bitcoin double standard here, whereas um, you can point to a lot of approved alternative uh, investment type ETFs that are relatively reckless. It's not like they're exactly like protecting uh, investors by allowing these products on board. And then on the flip side for Bitcoin, the access that investors do have through these funds is not optimal, right? Because they can't reflect NAV. So like, is the like, what's the SEC doing here? Like, are they even helping? Like, what's the, what's the deal? Yeah, I mean, I think their, you know, their their concerns um, that they put out, I think, in early 2018, um, centered a lot around uh, liquidity, uh, around custody issues. Um, a lot of those have been, I think, addressed for the most part. Um, the big one that I think is still out there is like this manipulation concern, right, which exists in in all assets, really, to a greater or lesser extent. But I think is particularly pronounced in cryptocurrencies, um, especially because of a couple uh, sort of crypto unique factors, right? Um, one of which is they're global assets. Second of which is they trade twenty four seven, right? Um, and then I think you know most, more recently we've sort of seen this you know idea of meme meme coins and and like you know, social media influencers with Elon Musk tweeting up, tweeting down, you know, and so sometimes the way I put it is I think, you know, the chances of Bitcoin moving 20% on a Saturday night because of something that happened in Asia are not zero, 
right? And that's the kind of risk that uh, I think makes the SEC concerned. Um, although they're divided, you know, not all the commissioners feel the same way. And some feel like it's not their role to sort of make sure that uh, that assets are calmed down enough and, you know, reduced volatility enough to let the public in. It's sort of, hey, if the if the product structures meet the requirements and the disclosure is sufficient, then we should let investors decide. I agree with that latter point of view, but not sure that um, Gensler's administration will take that approach per se. Awesome. Well, I think that that's a really helpful color. Um, So I appreciate you kind of uh, filling in the gaps there. I'm kind of curious, you know, you've been involved in Bitcoin for a while, obviously building out this product to make uh, Bitcoin more accessible and and adding a lot more variety to the market. Um, You know, do you think that Bitcoin needs an ETF? Like, personally, I think eventually in the US it happens. And obviously the market is creating alternatives to an ETF, but like, does Bitcoin need an ETF? Like eventually will people just like buy Bitcoin and hold it? Like what's kind of your, your vision there? Um, I wouldn't say Bitcoin needs an ETF, but you know, people always draw the analogy to gold and I think it works here pretty well. Um, so did gold need an ETF? Eh, I mean, it existed for a few thousand years without an ETF, right? Uh, but then when once one got launched, it did widen the distribution. It did uh, pull gold into more portfolio-related conversations with average investors, um, because before that, you had to go and you know buy coins from somebody and worry about where you store them and all that kind of thing. Same with Bitcoin, right? You can go out and there's lots of people who who do, and I have Bitcoin in many different forms. Um, but there's always going to be a contingent of people and assets that live within kind of the traditional system, right? And they're administered by uh, brokerages and fiduciaries and people who want things kind of the way they're used to it, having them. And so uh, a fund, a security is a good way to make that um, square peg that's trying to fit in a round hole to be a round peg, fitting in a round hole type of thing. So. It doesn't, I wouldn't say it needs it, but it could certainly benefit from an ETF. Yeah, no, I mean, I personally think everything is good for Bitcoin. So there's always a way to spin it, at least logically, for why it's good for Bitcoin. So an ETF, good for Bitcoin, no ETF, still good for Bitcoin. Um, <laughs> right. In, uh uh, on on that or in that vein, though, um, you know, a trillion dollar market cap, it was about fifty three thousand dollar Bitcoin um, that was uh, quite close to the local top. I'm kind of curious uh, what your thoughts are on that that milestone. How important is it? How long will it take to reclaim it? Um, yeah, I guess anything that kind of comes to mind when you think of one trillion and and Bitcoin. Um, to me, that milestone is is interesting, but completely irrelevant. Um, I think, you know, as a which I'm not a market technician, but just applying a little bit of that, I look at at Bitcoin as being kind of locked in this range right now. As we record this in uh, what are we June 16, um, 2021. <laughs> so uh, you know, these things get dated pretty quickly, right? So. Um, I think it's bouncing between, you know, 32 and 40 uh, and until it breaks out of that 
box in either direction, it's it's probably just going to crunch sideways. Um, but we take a lot longer term view, you know, uh, midterm and long term. I think uh, Bitcoin is going to at some point get to the market cap equivalent of gold, potentially passing it up. Um, and that's a long way to go, right? Because gold is somewhere around 10 trillion and we're talking about Bitcoin getting to one. Um, so I think it's got a, a good long ways to go. Um, and, you know, the, the number of people investing in Bitcoin still is a small percentage of the total number of investors and investment dollars available. Um, so from where I sit, the, you know, the, the pipes and the plumbing are still getting built and they're getting built by um institutions at a pretty high clip at this point and that just means dollars are going to are going to flow so we don't get too caught up with the um with the short-term kind of trading volatility of, of bitcoin and i think you know it was at a trillion and now it's not and soon it'll be back again um and go from there Bitcoiners, I want to tell you guys about The Deep Dive. The Deep Dive is a new premium newsletter from the Bitcoin Magazine team in conjunction with my man, BTCization, Dylan LeClaire. Dylan is such a multifaceted and wide-ranging analyst. He does everything from on-chain analytics to macro uh, analysis to uh, you know hash rate and all that kind of good stuff. He does it all. He breaks down everything that's happening every single day with his daily dive. He's going to dive into what is happening in the market that day. So that way you don't have to pay attention to Twitter. You don't have to pay attention to anything else. You can just pay attention to the deep dive and he has you covered. And at the end of the week, guess what? You get a weekly recap. And at the end of the month, hey, we have a freaking report, a beautiful PDF breaking down all the activity of that entire month, what it means for Bitcoin, what you can expect moving forward. The Bitcoin market is going to moon we are here to make sure that we maximize your stack. Go to members.bitcoinmagazine.com to sign up today. And if you use promo code BITS, you can get one month for free. So again, the deep dive, I've been checking it out every day and you should too. Back to the show. Another great response. Uh, curious from like a long-term perspective, a real milestone maybe. Um, you know, Bitcoin becoming a treasury asset for a company was a, like a 2020 milestone. And then it seems in 2021 that Bitcoin becoming a official uh, national currency, legal tender mm -hmm. in a country has happened, El Salvador. I'm curious to get your take on this kind of groundbreaking news from last week. Yeah, that I do think is a milestone. I mean, that's a very big deal uh, for a company or a country to validate Bitcoin that way. And they're, you know, not going to be the last to do so. Um, I think what's interesting there is um, the question, you know, what we don't know, right, in terms of what that status gives to Bitcoin as far as an entree into uh, the international banking system, uh, as far as like a different capital treatment, perhaps in, in different regimes. So there's a lot of sort of secondary and tertiary effects that I think will cascade from that, especially if there's a, a, a group of countries that start to coalesce around um, acknowledging Bitcoin as legal tender. So I think that's a total milestone. It was, I was in Miami at the conference and, uh, you know, they announced that and it was pretty cool. Um, I had no idea, of course, like that was coming. So that, that was, um, that was a very cool thing. And, and, and I'm curious to see what happens going forward as other sovereigns take a look at it. 
Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I, I just personally, I think I was one of the very few people that's saying like this is going to happen a lot faster than you think, and it's going to happen at the margins. But um, for me, it was just absolutely incredible to witness that live. I too was there, uh, lucky to sit in the uh, the front row because of the Bitcoin Magazine reservation. Um, oh, nice. You know, benefits of organizing the conference. But yeah, what an incredible moment and just the fallout from that. You know, the only thing that didn't really react is the price. It did kind of bounce from, you know, 33, 32, uh, uh, back up to close to 40. But, um, you know, it is kind of interesting to just see how long it takes, like fundamental shifts like this actually uh, get digested. Yeah, you know, uh, markets tend to um, underreact to significantly positive news and sometimes overreact to, you know, marginally negative news. So um, I, I think the consequences of this are going to be felt for a while um, and uh, they probably haven't been built into the price yet. So I was watching a CNBC interview where you were explaining the technology adoption S-curve. Um, I thought you did a really fantastic job discussing that, both that as well as the the bell curve, which is kind of like a, you know, a, a shift or a slight variation on the same curve. I use both of those to explain Bitcoin adoption and why I think at some point the inflection point happens and uh, the USD number goes up insanely. But uh, I would love to kind of hear your take on that technology adoption S-curve, where Bitcoin fits on it, all those good uh, questions. Yeah, so um, early on, just in trying to explain to investors, like, okay, you know, where are we in the life cycle of Bitcoin and, and, and why should I invest? And um, I guess taking a step back a lot, I say this, find myself saying this all the time, is that crypto investing is, is really tech investing, right? It's just a new form of, of accessing the tech. So it's not coming through, you know, uh, equity in a, in a startup. It's coming through, and in some cases, um, coins and tokens in in an ecosystem. So, you have to think to yourself, well, you know, what do I believe in this um, technology, and if so, where are we in the life cycle? And so, uh, you know, we didn't do this work. Obviously, the S curve of technological adoption is um, has been out there for quite some time. But, um, you know, it's basically in the shape of an S and it says that um, when any given technology comes onto the market, you have uh, kind of four groups of people. You have the early adopters, which I think is the first, um, there's like the really early guys, which is the, the 2%. And then early adopters is basically the first 10%. And then you have, um, you know, the, the, the asset kind of start to do an inflection point and it starts to make the shape of an S. Um, but that early majority, which is the the next 40% to get you to the halfway mark, most people, I think, in the industry believe that Bitcoin is in that phase, right? So it's it's passing the point of inflection and getting into the early majority phase. Um, it's not it's not to the halfway mark. There was a study put out by Gemini, you know, the 2021 state of crypto or something along those lines, um, a couple months ago, and you know, their survey was that 14% of U.S. investors have some kind of exposure to crypto, right? So we're, we're, we're nowhere near the halfway point, I don't think. Um, but I would expect that the technological adoption curve is, um, is what's governing the behavior behind Bitcoin investing ultimately. And you, you can kind of see it with your friends and family, you know. Um, to me, it was really interesting how many people 
in the run-up in 2017 were sort of calling me and talking to me and then how many people you know this time around right and it's a it's it's basically a new set of people right so it just kind of cascades outward you know these these widening circles and you see new uh people getting involved and then i just got an email from a guy today he's like oh yeah we'll grab lunch next week and then uh, maybe you can convince me why crypto is a good thing you know, and he's a skeptic, right? So he's he's clearly not in the uh, in the early majority or whatever. So um, that's fine. Everybody's on their own journey. But if you happen to be a person who's who's early and who gets it early and gets there early, uh, the potential rewards are just that much greater. Yeah, no, absolutely. And something different between uh, Bitcoin, crypto, and uh, previous tech investing is that anyone can can get access to the value token. Right. Uh, and you can you can invest directly into the technology rather than into a tech company that owns the technology. So it's 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 almost more just like a, a more intense way to invest in technology to some degree. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And and you know I guess one of the cons of that is everyone sees the mark to market right, and you have to stomach the ups and the downs. Whereas in tech investing. Those ups and downs are borne by venture capital funds that you never see. And by the way, their financial statements don't necessarily reflect that volatility either. But we all know that VC funds invest in 10 companies. One of them is going to go to the moon. Two of them are going to do okay. And seven of them are going to go bankrupt, right? And that's stomach-churning type of investing. But typically, the public is is not seeing that directly whereas now you can buy coins and tokens and kind of experience that type of a of a ride yourself yeah and uh, to be honest so i before getting into bitcoin myself i was in silicon valley just doing you know SaaS sales and being involved in startups is a big reason why i personally avoided tokens because i was like oh these are just shitty startups like i've worked <laughs> for plenty of shitty startups like this shit's not worth right. anything um, so not to, not to, you know, decry most projects I, I am for the most part of, you know, a strict Bitcoiner, um, but you know, not all crypto is the same, but you can absolutely get exposure to all of it pretty much in the same way. And that's one of the features of Bitcoin. Bitcoin enables permissionless markets and, uh, you know, obviously these sorts of fundraises and tokens and all that stuff is, is definitely part of that. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm curious, um, you know, why are you bullish? You know, you've been involved in the space. You you were primed to understand where Bitcoin could go. You kind of touched a little bit on it, but I'm just kind of curious, like, you know, what out there continues to um, strengthen your your bullish thesis, and what what's the the backbone of your bullish thesis? So um, I think that Bitcoin. Uh, as a digital substitute for gold makes a lot of sense. I don't, I don't know that um, the world realized it had that problem. And so Bitcoin came along as a solution to, um, to a problem that not many people realized existed. And people are, are starting to catch on to that, but back to the S-curve, you know, at varying rates. Um, and so I think Bitcoin solves that problem pretty well. It is when you, when you go and compare it to gold it's in many ways superior actually you know and I, I didn't think i would wind up saying that to be honest like uh i've been a gold investor for a long time and to a certain extent there's no substitute for gold but 
the world is pretty digital these days. And apart from the fact that you can't hold your Bitcoins and put them in your pocket and, and you know, admire their, their, their shiny color, um, you know, in, in most ways, Bitcoin's superior to gold. So I think the world does need trusted uh, repositories uh, where they can store uh, assets on a long-term basis and uh, transfer them with ease, et cetera. So I'm bullish because I think that uh, Bitcoin is solving a, a real problem and it's a, and it's a pretty good solution. It's not perfect because of the scalability issues um, on the payment side, uh, but it's solving sort of like half the problem. And I think that's enough uh, once the world fully sits up and takes notice um, to make its market cap eventually be a lot bigger than it is today. So that's kind of the fundamental thesis that we have in terms of long-term bullishness for Bitcoin. I think there's a lot of other crypto projects solving other problems, but this one's kind of solving the fiat currency, you know, agency problem that exists between um, citizens and their and their governments. Yeah, it's it's the the base money. It's the thing that keeps governments honest, really, or banks honest, whatever. Um, it's that kind of problem and. Yeah, I, I think a lot of people, I agree with you, a lot of people are ignorant that that is even a problem. Most economists are ignorant that that is even a problem. They think, you know, gold is this relic we've innovated past. Uh, and right. it's not. Maybe and gold the, has, gold got disrupted. I think the internet disrupted gold. Like people say, you know, paper disrupted gold. Like the internet disrupted gold. Gold just couldn't play on the internet. That's my that's my yeah. thesis. But it's still like yeah. something like that is needed. Yeah, no, agreed. And, you know, there's a lot of criticism of Bitcoin because it's volatile. And, and, and so if you say, oh, you know, you, it's, a, it's a good place to store value long term, people will say to you, well, oh, my gosh, you know, it's going to it's going to move around so much. You have no idea, whatever, whatever. I put 400 bucks into a Bitcoin, you know, eight years ago. So you're right. It's been really volatile. But now, you know, it held its value versus the dollar pretty well. Yeah, you're pretty happy with that four hundred dollars dropped in there. That particular, yeah, you know, and about more than one, but not not enough, right? <laughs> so you know, you know, but hey, there's more available right now at thirty eight thousand dollars or whatever it is. Yeah, I mean, in in the the divisibility, I think people need to get over the maybe the the unit bias that people have uh with bitcoin and i think as, as sats get more expensive they'll also become something that people uh it makes more sense to people too so um yeah. i'm kind of curious something that you said like you know bitcoin solves half the problem i do agree that you know it's difficult like blockchains don't really scale that well for payments necessarily uh do you mm -hmm. see a world where um you know there are solutions built for bitcoin to just to kind of get it to scale or um, like what's kind of like your vision there? Or do you think that Bitcoin just doesn't need to even worry about that? That, you know, as long as Bitcoin is 21 million and no one can cheat it, that it's good. I guess kind of curious, like future looking, uh, maybe limitations or where does Bitcoin go next? I, I think it, it would be fine if that was, if that problem was sort of never solved for Bitcoin. I think Bitcoin is, is good as a reserve asset and it has enough, um, sort of throughput to to exist and, and continue to grow significantly. Everything I said about it to this point presumes that there's no kind of payment rail built on top of it that that winds up, you know, speeding up transactions by, you know, 
10,000 fold or something. Um, that being said, uh, I, I certainly wouldn't give up on that possibility at all. I mean, obviously there are a lot of different projects, whether it's, you know, the lightning network or, or um, stacks or something that are trying to build onto Bitcoin. And so I don't know what I don't know, right, about what technology can do there. Um, and I think that would be fantastic. I think that would be great if someone figures out essentially how to scale um, Bitcoin from a from a payments processing point of view. But clearly that wouldn't be sort of on chain, right? It has to be has to be a solution built on top of Bitcoin. But certainly wouldn't rule that out. Awesome. Well, I'm sure you didn't come on here to uh, to give technical opinions, but um, always yeah. good to kind of get your thoughts here. Uh, you know, Greg, this has been a, a great conversation. I feel like we touched on a lot of different important aspects of the Bitcoin market. Um, want to give you a moment to you know kind of close it out with um, anything that you know you want to share with the Bitcoin Magazine audience. Sure. Yeah. So uh, maybe just a word about Osprey funds. Um, we obviously have the Bitcoin Trust. Um, we've launched a couple of others. I know there's probably some, you know, maximalists in your audience. That's all good. Um, I, I sort of lean maximalist, but like I also recognize that there are projects out there that are that are solving other problems, right? There's there's other problems to solve besides just the fiat currency issue. Um, and so we have a Polkadot Trust, an Algorand Trust. Um, you know, check it out at our website. You know, follow me on Twitter at Greg King Osprey. And um, what we're trying to do, which I think is different in the space, is we're trying to curate projects and launch things that we think are going to be sustainable, that we think are going to be winners over time. Obviously, can't guarantee any performance, but if you follow us and stay abreast of what we're doing, hopefully that adds some value to the investment experience. Fantastic. Well, definitely we'll have you back onto Bitcoin Magazine uh, to talk all things ETF uh, as well as Bitcoin funds. Uh, and uh, until then, to all the listeners, make sure to follow me at CK underscore Snarks. Make sure to follow Bitcoin Magazine at Bitcoin Magazine. Give us those five star reviews. You know the drill. Catch you on the next show. Peace. A quick reminder that all of the content in this episode is for informational and entertainment purposes only. You should not construe the information as legal, tax, investment, financial, or any other advice. Nothing contained in this presentation constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, or offer by BTC Media, the Let's Talk Bitcoin Podcast Network, or any third-party service provider to buy or sell securities or any other financial instruments. Do your own research.